The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. C-13 Originals. You can see that. This was all taped up. Evidence tape. Because the police did have this for a while, but the marshals never came and claimed it. This is his life. This is all he left. This is his life. Everything. Everything that ever happened to this man is in here. This audio was recorded in 2013, shortly after my father took his own life and the lives of his wife and stepson. I was finally digging into his trunk, and I can remember feeling completely overwhelmed with it all. I had no idea what I would find document after document. I actually have documentation now that I'm on the Witness Protection Program, which I never had before. Um, it was in his plea agreement, so I have all of the legal papers. So I've had trouble in my life actually proving that I was on the program. Uh, I, I have no proof. So now I do. He kept every newspaper article, every letter he ever wrote, every letter he ever received. This is an old knife. He always had this knife on him. I don't even want to know what went on with this knife. Looking back, it was surreal going through the trunk for the first time. I felt both sympathy and contempt. Nostalgia, but also a weird sense of detachment. Like, it was my father's life in a box, but... Really, he was a complete stranger. I don't know how he got all these pictures. I don't know how he saved them all. It's just, wow. Picture after picture after picture. That's his mama. That's his wife, Vivian. Here's my Uncle Whitey who passed away. I was at his funeral. This was a guy he testified against. So, these are actually my father's patches. And if they found out that I had them and was trying to sell them on eBay or make a profit off of them, that would definitely cost me my life. You don't do that. I mean, this isn't anything to play around with, especially my dad's patches. It'd be different if he died while a member, but uh, everything that he did, these are definitely very dangerous to possess. Just fascinating, though, going through this shit. 
Beneath the Ziploc bag his patches were in, I noticed a small glass jar. So these are different pins that they got. Um, they got pins on their inauguration into the HAs. Here's this five-year pin. Special things. Inside the jar, along with the pins, was a small piece of paper with handwriting on it. Okay, so in this little jar, he wrote, I take these off. I take these off without any regrets. To destroy something evil, you have to be very good. All good. November 3rd, 1981. Clarence Crouch. That's a trip. I didn't realize it when I read it, but that was written the day before my father called Bernie Butkovich. I wonder if he truly understood what he was about to get himself into. Without the light Or the darkness come Hold through the night Shadows will run mm-hmm. Fend off the enemy Sing out the jubilee With all the fire we can breathe My name is Jackie Taylor And this is Relative Unknown To have the patch on your back is everything no one's going to touch you. They know if they touch you, everyone's going to come after them, all the other angels. You could commit crimes. There'll be no witnesses. They know that you're an angel. People will come after them for testifying against you. They don't have to do it, but the fact that it's been done in the past and everybody knows about it is intimidating. This is Tom Doyle. Doyle is a retired detective who spent 39 years with the East Lake Police Department on the outskirts of Cleveland, and he's had plenty of experience with the Hells Angels and their trials. Here, he tells a story about one of them when the defense attorney was questioning potential jurors, a process known as voir dire. Try a Hells Angel for theft, okay? Three or four Hells Angels come in color in the courtroom while the jury is being voir dired. The fact that the defendant is a Hells Angel is not a negative. The defense attorney, while doing voir dire, says to each of them, the fact that my client is a Hells Angel, you're not going to hold that against him, are you? Of course, they're saying no. You're not afraid of Hells Angels, are you? Well, you got men sitting there. They're not going to say, I'm afraid. So they say no. At one point, he asked one of the jurors, you're driving along the freeway in Route 2 in the summertime, and your windows are open, you listen to music. All of a sudden, you're vroom, 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 and alongside of you on each side come this big, long line of motorcycles, Harley Davidson, these people with all their tattoos and all their rings, and you see the Hells Angels colors in the back. What are you thinking at this point? And the guy's looking around, he goes, I'm thinking, I hope my horn doesn't get stuck right now. <laughs> he understands, everybody understands the intimidation value. You don't have to say it, we're intimidating you. We just have to understand human nature. In that case, the person who complained doesn't come to court. He won't come as a witness now saying, I've been the victim of a crime. 
Finally, we get a warrant and arrest him as a material witness, bring him to court. As we're coming down the hallway, I'm walking to another detective. We're walking him in. And he goes, I have to take a piss. So he walks in the men's room. So we walk in, and there stands the guy at the urinal with his penis in his hand. And at each shoulder is a Hells Angel standing about three feet away. And now we stand there behind them, and we open up our coats. They can see the badges and guns. And I go, now, squeeze the dropout. Go ahead, you know? <laughs> you know, and he can't. He can't. He's just got his eyes about this big. And then he gets on a stand and testifies, I was drinking during that whole year, and I don't remember anything. There's an intimidative value. They don't have to say it. It's implied. Everybody knows it, and they act in a way that is hard to describe, but when you see it, you know intimidation. Which had spent about nine months with us in Billings before he began serving his 10 to 40-year sentence. But the deal that he'd cut meant that, of course, one day, the time would come for him to begin testifying. Not just in front of the U.S. Senate, but in court face-to-face with his former Hells Angels brothers. And as the first trial approached, almost a year after he'd written that note in the jar, the media was all over it. One Ohio newspaper ran a story with the headline, Hells Angel Informant Described as Important. It read, Testimony by a former member of the Hells Angels against fellow members of the motorcycle club could have national importance, federal officials say. In the coming months, Clarence Crouch, 42, of Cleveland, could do to the Hells Angels what Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano did to organize crime in recent trials around the nation. Fratiano's testimony helped put a dozen mafia leaders in jail. Crouch said he decided to quit the Hells Angels because he became fed up with the killings. While I thought he was off on a fishing boat, my father was sitting in prison, waiting to be called to testify. And it was during this time that he began to write so many letters. He made at least two copies of each, one to send and one to save. This one, which gives some insight into his decision to flip, was written to a detective from the Cleveland Police Department as these trials were gearing up. I was completely dedicated to the club for many years, and it took many things to break my back of dedication. But as I sat at my mother's house in Louisiana, trying to make up my mind to call Bernie, I seen on television where two members had been killed in South Carolina, and I knew from what I had heard that they had been killed by other members. I sat down for the first time and started listing all the deaths that I knew the Hells Angels were responsible for. Since this was something I never even let myself think about, meaning that when something like a small child reminded me of the bombing that killed a two-year-old and its mother in Cleveland, I would chase it from my mind. My intentions were to stop the killings long enough to think about what we had become. It wasn't who had the best bike or who could party the best, was a good member. It had become a thing of whoever killed the most was the best member. As an older member, brothers began to come to me and ask me what had happened to us. Was this what we had worked so hard to be? What members had put their lives on the line for? So I sat down and started making this list, which just kept growing and growing and I couldn't believe it. So after spending many years trying to change things in vain, I did the only thing I felt I could do, which was to tell everything I knew and let everyone judge for themselves. Several Cleveland Angels had been indicted for murder, and Jack Gentry would be the first in court that my father would testify against. Gentry stood accused of shooting a member of the Outlaws to death named Ralph Tanner in Toledo, Ohio in November of 1980. 
Sonny Barger, and several other angels traveled to Ohio for the trial. One of Gentry's defense attorneys is a man named Ralph Buss, and Buss remembers the wild scene outside the courthouse. Before the trial started, the outlaws, maybe 50 or more bikes, were circling the courthouse on their bikes. The sheriffs were hiding behind the stairway behind bushes. They thought something really bad would happen. And Sonny Barger was there with two of his uh, assistants from Oakland. And he was watching all of this. And then he and they walk out maybe 100 yards to where the street is. And he stops all the bikes and he says, you think you guys own this town? I got news for you. You're just renting it. Beat it, yeah. But of course, the outlaws were messing with us to where we had rented a house and the FBI came over and said that you guys are going to be going to Mars tonight unless you get out because we have uh, information that the house is going to be dynamited. I want all of you to go to a hotel. <laughs> so so that's that's what we did. When the trial finally began in October of 1982, Headlines read, Ex-Hell's Angel to testify on gang. Witness testifies murder planned. And Hell's Angel describes death ritual. The Cincinnati Inquirer read, After Tanner was killed, Crouch said, the fact that Gentry had made his bones was announced during an Angel's meeting. He said the club president displayed a newspaper clipping that described Tanner's shooting. I've seen a clipping on it. Yeah. The clipping was passed around at church. Okay. That was Jack. Rolling his bones, okay? After Gentry's new status was announced, Crouch said, the angels present hugged him. They shook his hand and congratulated him. He said Gentry told him Tanner was hard to get because the automatic rifle jumped around in his hands. Here's former Cleveland angel, Matt Zanaskar. Now it was the time to strategize with people on how we're gonna fight this evil that is in front of us. Fight it, I mean, in court. We've got to sit down now and bring about any traits that he had that were negative. In addition to Ralph Buss, Jack Gentry had another defense attorney on his side named Alan Kaplan. And Kaplan came prepared for his cross-examination of my father. A Toledo Blade article read, In a bid to challenge Crouch's credibility, Kaplan elicited from Crouch information about his past. Crouch said that he worked only sporadically and was supported by money that he made selling drugs and motorcycle parts and by loans given to him by his club brothers and by women with whom he lived. Crouch also told the jury that he shot a girlfriend in the leg and stuck another's foot to the floor with a knife. He also said that statements that he made to Butkovich about patterning himself after Jimmy the Weasel and writing a book about his experiences were made while he was, quote, on the verge of a nervous breakdown when asked about my father's testimony, Alan Kaplan said this to the Toledo Blade. People won't believe in the quality of a bought and paid for witness. The article then notes inconsistencies in my father's testimony. It says, in November, during a discussion with federal agents, Crouch said the weapon was a 45 caliber revolver equipped with a silencer. He hit him with a 45 in the driveway with a silencer. That was Jack, all right? Is that good enough? But during this week's trial, the article continues, he said the weapon was a special 22 AR for automatic rifle. Finally, Kaplan said this of the prosecution, they want to rest their case on one thing, 
the totally uncorroborated testimony of Clarence Addie Crouch. The defense rested its case without calling any witnesses. And after a four-day trial, Gentry was acquitted. Here's defense attorney Ralph Buss again. Zach Gentry got off because they liked Kaplan and they liked Sonny and all the people that came with him. But uh, the jurors didn't want to talk to, to us uh, because they, some of their pets were poisoned and and that type of stuff. And so there was some some hostility over that. The Toledo Blade article from the Gentry trial was in my father's trunk. The one that said he'd shot a woman and stuck another woman's foot to the floor with a knife. I was revolted by reading it, but I also found it hard to believe. And then I came across this passage in hate and discontent. One night I went to church at the clubhouse and when I returned to the apartment, I found a note from my old girl Hillbilly saying that she had left and was going to Florida to take care of this old man who owned this dirty bookstore downtown. I wouldn't have been so mad, but she took all the cash that I had and all the bills were overdue. She had taken $1,400 and didn't leave a dime. I didn't say anything at first and didn't want the word to get out that I was hot at her because I knew she would never come back around if she thought I was mad. After Mary had moved in and was there for a couple of months, I heard that Hillbilly was back in town and out at this bar. I went out there, and at first she got all uptight and was about to run out the door, but I just played it cool. And she came creeping up to the table I was sitting at, feeling me out. Before long, she was all at ease, and we were drinking and dancing, and later we left and went back to the apartment. Mary was working on the night shift at the hospital, and as soon as we got in the apartment, I told Hillbilly to take off her clothes. She was laughing and asking if I wanted to look over her body to see if there was any changes in it and climbed up on the couch where she started turning all around and saying, see, everything is still tight and in good working order, daddy. I pulled out a pistol and started saying, you fucking bitch. You think I just forgot all about the fucking money you took off for? The way you left me with all those bills? She started getting all uptight and I watched her eyes as she was staring at me. I fired one shot that went right by her leg, and she jumped and got all wide-eyed as it powder-burned her. Then as she looked down and seen that it didn't hit her, I could read it in her eyes as she was thinking, oh, he's just going to scare me a little. And as she looked back at me, I shook my head real slow and said, no, I'm not, but she understood right away. I shot her in that leg, and she turned a full flip on that couch. She started screaming as the blood started flowing. Tommy came running and screaming for me not to kill her. I got hot and told him to get the fuck out of my house and take the bitch with him if he wanted. But Hillbilly didn't want to go. She wanted to stay till she was sure that I'd finished with her. I told her it was all over. And the only thing I wanted back was the money and that was it. They took her to the hospital and the bullet had went through her leg about six inches above her knee and all the way through without hitting anything. In fact, she was walking without a limp or anything two days later when I picked her up at this bar and took her to a motel for the night. Just the thought that he would bring a woman back to their apartment that they shared and this particular incident, shooting her in the leg, terrorizing her, and this is all while my mother is at work. That's, it's just, I can't even imagine. I mean, 
I just can't even, I can't fathom that. That just, it's, it's just disgusting. I can't even believe it. When I read this, I, I actually felt a little pity for my mother. This is the person that she tried so hard to love and tried so hard to help. And throughout my teen years, when I was dating here and there, and she, she always would get the vibe from a guy if he was bad or not. And she would always tell me, you can't love the hate out of him. He's not going to change. I tried to do that with your father and it didn't work. Look what happened. That was the hardest thing about all of this. Finding out who my father was is just, I had no idea what kind of a monster he was back then. But the thing that really blew my mind is that there were other articles that said he'd testified that he'd fathered at least 13 other children that he knew of, and he bragged about it. That really was a bombshell to me. Imagine reading in an article that you have 13 brothers and sisters out there. I'm sure it was devastating to my mother. My father wrote this letter on April 29th, 1983. Dear Mary, Well, I tried to call, and the line was busy. When I called this morning, there was no answer. So that's the end of my allowance for phone calls this week. There is a collect phone, but I wouldn't feel right calling you that way on your birthday. Sure would like to get a letter from you. I still look each day, hoping that there's something. Then once or twice a week, I'll write a letter begging you to write, then tear it up, thinking that I have to be strong and not put any more burdens on you. God knows that i put so much on you now that I don't know how you've been able to shoulder it all. All I've been thinking is to get money together so at least you can get rid of that burden. Then we can work out any problem that we've got going. But I stay depressed all the time now and can't seem to get the needles out of my eyes. I sit staring at you and the children's picture each day, trying to justify what I've done. But the loss of you just ain't worth it, and I'm not sure what to do anymore. All the moral reasons that I had were stomped to death a long time ago by these so-called law enforcement people. They don't care how many people are killed. All of this I can take and keep fighting, but to lose you, I can't take that. It's just too much to pay. As long as I felt that you were in my corner waiting, I could take all this and whatever else they throw at me. I love and miss you very much, Mary. Love, C. Shortly after this letter, my mother filed for divorce. When we found out that my mother had filed for divorce for my father was right around the time that we found out that my father was in prison for murder. And when she filed for divorce, it was just another thing that us children had to deal with by ourselves. My mother really wasn't comforting about this. She wanted to put it behind her. She never wanted to talk about him again. That was it. That was done. That was a done deal. And as for my father, he made his bed, and now he had to lie in it, alone. And the next trial was right around the corner. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. 
visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey, friend, it's Cami Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cami Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We were told that there was an informant who would be the primary witness. And we were told that his name was Butch Crouch. And we developed a little bit of background. We wanted to know about Butch Crouch and trying to evaluate whether to take this case, whether not to take this case, whether to present it, whether not to present it. This is Rick Dobbins. Back in 1983, Dobbins was a young prosecutor in Akron, Ohio. Dobbins and another prosecutor, Roger Davidson, who you heard last episode, were assigned to a murder case being brought against Hell's Angel, Andrew Shoshone. Butch was going to testify that Shoshone had stolen the car that was used when my father shot 17-year-old Donald De La Serra to death. My father had pled guilty to that crime, and now Shoshone was being tried for murder. Earlier that year, Shoshone had been tried in another murder case. He stood accused of pulling up in a van on I-77 in Cleveland, alongside an outlaw named Buddy Sunday, back in 1975. Sunday was shot off his motorcycle and died. My father testified in that trial as the prosecution's only witness. And just like in the Gentry trial, defense attorney Alan Kaplan tore apart his testimony. The case was dismissed for lack of evidence, and Shoshone was acquitted. Now, in October of 1983, Shoshone would be back on trial again, with my father testifying against him again. And so what we learned about Butch Crouch was not good news as far as being a good witness. So we read about Butch Crouch, but you have to know and see a person face to face. So just prior to the Shoshone trial, Rick Dobbins and Roger Davidson traveled to New York, where Butch was being held, to interview him about the case. Here's Davidson on his initial impression. I thought Butch Crouch was one predatory motherfucker. Call it a sociopath, call it whatever you want. He was evil as far as I'm concerned. And he was nasty. He was telling something to us, Rick and myself, that I knew was going to be an awful hard sell to a jury if his word was all we had to go on. Because from where I was sitting, he sure wasn't looking very believable to me. I didn't like the guy. I didn't trust the guy. I wasn't sure the jury was going to hear any of the truth. It was obvious that he felt that he could manipulate us because of his quote-unquote knowledge about the crime and his willingness to testify and probably say anything we'd want him to if we'd ask him to, to convict Andrew Shoshone. He was positive in his own mind that what he had to say was so important 
That's just the way he thought. He just gave the air that he was interested not in doing the right thing, but he was interested in what value he could accrue from doing the right thing. I felt personally that I didn't believe 50% of what Clarence Crouch told me about this homicide. That causes you problems in your, in your stomach and in your heart. Anyway, uh, later on, while the trial is going on, right before Butch Crouch is, is to take the stand, myself and Rick Dobbins, we go back in this little room where he's being kept separate from everybody else and talk to him and ask him, you know, if he's ready and if he's prepared. And, and that's when he told us that we had to do better. Before taking the stand against Shoshone again, my father tried to leverage his testimony, and he gave Dobbins and Davidson an ultimatum. When Butch said, I want two more years off, we decided that we're not ever going to ask. He didn't deserve two more years off his sentence, and we had a sense that the case was not going well. He was playing us for what he could get out of us. He was playing the ATF for what he could get out of them. He was playing the Hells Angels for what he could get out of them. His whole life was what other people can do for me, not what he can do for anybody else. And if it wasn't good for Butch Crouch, it was not going to happen. And we decided we have done everything we can do. This will not assist the jury to hear his story again, to try to refute the obvious. Butch thought he had us in a situation where we would have to do anything that he asked us in order to go ahead with this trial. He thought that in his mind that us convicting Andrew Shoshone was much more important than what happened to him for what he did in the crime. And he thought once the trial started, that he had Rick and myself by the short hairs. He actually was probably smiling inside himself, saying, now these guys are going to have to do what I'm asking them. I'm in control. And Rick Dobbins just told him to go buff his nuts. Dobbins and Davidson never even called my father to the stand. When the jury came out, the judge asked them, have you reached a verdict? They said, yes, we have. Foreman, would you hand the verdict to the judge reads it? We find the defendant not guilty. I didn't feel disappointed. What I felt was I think the jury made the right decision based on the evidence that was presented. I don't certainly wasn't going to fault them. There'd be a couple of juries I could have faulted, but not that one. Do I think the ATF overreached with Butch? Yes, I do. They should not have made Butch Crouch a witness in a murder trial because of the, all the baggage that uh, his personality and his background was carrying around. What's that my dad used to say? Life, life is uh, short, brutal, and ugly. And it is.
The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. For the second time in less than one year, Andrew Shoshone was acquitted of murder. Now, after three trials with no convictions, headlines that were printed earlier that year, like Hell's Angel Informant described as important, had turned into new headlines, like Angel's Witness Turns Out a Bust. Steve Wells, Cleveland's ATF supervisor and the man who helped develop my father as a witness, was quoted in the newspaper saying, I think he is a credible witness. I think his veracity has yet to be impeached. We intend to continue using him. Andrew Shoshone said, quote, It's the second time I've been accused by Clarence Crouch. I just wonder when it's going to stop and when he's going to tell another story. Here's former Cleveland Angel, Matt Zanaskar. Well, some of, some of his uh, stuff was very exaggerated coming up with statements, ah, there was people getting killed almost every day, you know, I'm, geez, come on. I mean, I mean, come on, you know. I think he was uh, going after Andy to get a conviction so he could uh, raise his level of uh, prosecutorial credibility because maybe he thought he could cash in on it. And, and, and in turn, it would be a bargaining chip for more money, wouldn't it? Shoshone's attorney, Alan Kaplan, made a more brief statement about my father when he said this. Juries just don't trust that man. But just one month later, my father would be back on the stand to try to help convict those accused of planning the bomb at the Sigley residence in 1975, which killed a mother, her two-year-old son, and a family friend. Richard Amato and Harry Chicarellis would stand trial for the crime. The prosecution had the C4 explosive and the signal flare, which were found both at the crime scene as well as the storage container, which had been searched two years earlier. And of course, they had Butch Crouch as the key witness. Once again, attorney Ralph Buss was part of the defense team. And right away, Buss noticed something odd about James McGettrick, the judge presiding over the trial. The Hells Angels were getting so much press that we couldn't get a fair trial. And so we filed for uh, individual sequestered jury voir dire. Voir dire, that's a French word for speaking to the jury, okay? And so um, 
the voir dire was done in his office. So uh, uh, when we were inside, uh, we, we noticed that the judge had a uh, Nivea bottle with him. It's a bottle about eight inches tall, cobalt blue with white uh, letters. The, 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 hand, the cream. Well, he was uh, taking a Nivea bottle and uh, taking the cap off and drinking out of it. Nivea is a big thing in Europe. As a kid, I remember that. And when I saw that, I said, he can't be drinking Nivea's. <laughs> There's got to be something else, else in it. Yeah. Okay. And so um, he was very nice to the jurors. But at one point, he came out of his bathroom with his robe on. And um, he had his underwear around his ankles and tripped and fell right among all of us. Okay. So... The suspicion was high that that intoxicant was going to be used, but we went through all of that successfully, and the jury was actually impaneled. When the trial began, the defense team followed the same playbook as the earlier ones as they attacked the prosecution's main witness. I remember pictures of Clarence Crouch being showed on a large screen in color to the jury. The last one was. Uh, Crouch was hugging this huge tree that had a hole in it and he uh, was sticking his penis in it. And uh, when uh, Judge McGettrick saw that, he says, this is going too far. And they uh, instructed the jury to uh, wipe that memory out of their mind. But it was impossible, I'd say. (laughs) It got worse. A Cleveland Plain Dealer article was written during the Sigley bombing trial, which had the title, ex-Angel's mind vague on talks with U.S. agent. It read, Crouch, 43, became vague when asked about a telephone call to a federal agent. In the tape-recorded call on November 3rd, 1981, Crouch told the agent, I can help you build a whole gang of cases on hearsay. I can help you build a whole gang of cases on just fucking hearsay and this and that. Crouch told defense lawyers he, quote, didn't know what he meant by that. Despite the memory lapses, Crouch stuck to his story in claiming biker Richard Amato, 34, helped set the bomb January 7, 1975, at 6101 Lansing Avenue. Another angel, Harold Chacarellis, 40, is awaiting trial. A federal report on the debriefing of Crouch by agents quotes him as saying, I think Richie was with them, too. Crouch told Carnes the debriefing is now, quote, a blur and that it looked unfamiliar. James Carnes was another member of the defense team, and he said this. My God, Carnes exclaimed, you're charging a man with murder and you're telling this jury it's unfamiliar to you? Before the case could even be sent to the jury for a verdict, though, Judge McGettrick, the man Ralph Buss saw drinking out of a hand lotion bottle, dismissed it for lack of evidence. So Richard Amato was acquitted. And because the upcoming trial against Harry Ciccarellis would be using the exact same evidence and testimony, his case was dismissed as well. And my father was now 0 for 4 in trials that he appeared as a witness. But later, Ralph Buss says he heard that other factors may have been at play. Carnes and I, of course, were elated when the judge granted the motion to dismiss the case at the end of the prosecution's presentation. And uh, we thought that we did such a great job. And then we find out afterwards uh, that uh, a bribe supposedly was involved. 
Cleveland PD Intelligence Unit Sergeant Bob Cermak and his team had been investigating corruption in the Common Pleas Court during this time. And five months after the Richard Amato trial, he got a phone call in the middle of the night from ATF Supervisor Steve Wells. Wells told Cermak he'd run into Judge McGetrick at a bar. Here's Bob Cermak. I've often said that a good criminal investigation is just as much dumb luck as it is hard labor. But uh, our buddy Steve Wells, who uh, has been known to enjoy a cold beverage every now and then, uh, stopped at a particular watering hole on the west side of the city, and he sees Judge McGetrick there. So Steve being Steve, he sits down not too far from McGetrick, and he makes a flippant remark about what a great job he did for the Angels. He tells McGettrick, he says, we really appreciate what you did for Richie, he says, in that case and throwing it out. Well, McGettrick looks over and he kind of thinks he recognizes Steve as being somehow affiliated with the Hells Angels. And McGettrick comes back and says, well, yeah, he says, but they didn't give me enough money. I was actually supposed to get another payment. And they just had some other dumb conversation. Steve leaves. It's about 3.30 in the morning. He calls me at home and he's he's pretty well inebriated and he starts to tell me the story. And I said, Steve, I said, do me a favor. I said, go home, go to bed, call me in the office in the morning and tell me the story again. And so he, I hung up on him and the next morning he calls the office and uh, we discussed what had happened. And uh, we tried to figure out what was going to be the best course of action. So what we decided to do was to have Steve wear a wire and go back to the bar and, and see if he could engage McGetrick in, 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 in more conversation and see where that would go. You'll remember that Steve Wells suffered a major stroke several years ago and his speech became difficult to understand. Here's Wells, followed by another voice repeating his words. We make cases uh, over time on judges. We would make cases over time on judges and bums and mafia guys and everybody. Cold call. Just by cold call, cold contacting them. So I just went up to him and said, thank you. Thank you. And he says, you guys still have the money? Yeah, I can get it. He said, okay. And then I went and got the money from Bob Cermak. About $5,000. Bob Cermak, about $5,000. So Steve Wells put on a wire and met back up with Judge McGetrick in a bar and recorded their conversation. The following is a reading of the transcript from that meeting. Hey, I talked to some people about that 5,000 you mentioned to me. They asked me to talk to you. There's a very good chance that can be had, but I ain't going to talk in here about it. I'll tell you that right now. I have to be reelected. That's all. Tell them to get it up front so I get reelected. They want to know how the hell you're going to do it. I mean, let's face it. This ain't the same damn thing as with a motto. It's totally different. They said maybe we're asking for too much, you know? I think you said things have always been straight and no problems. I don't know, so... Listen, let me tell you something. The case is set for September, and there'll be no problem at all if I get elected, and I will. (sighs) See, they can't afford for the damn thing to go to the jury. You know, I've taken it away from the jury. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what they want to know, is if they can be assured that that it ain't going to the jury and he walks. That's all they care about. Well... The other day you had something. There's your five. I'll get the rest for you within the next day or so. 
I personally arrested the judge and read him his rights, and they searched the house, and we found the $5,000, and it was in an envelope, same envelope that Steve had handed him. We also found in his house two other envelopes very similar to that, both containing pretty substantial amounts of cash. We further investigated some of the other funds that we found, and we were able to trace one of the envelopes, the contents of one of the envelopes to a specific bank, to a specific teller, to a specific transaction. And the person that received the cash was a Hells Angel, and we were able to put that Hells Angel in the Common Police Court building on the same day that Judge McGettrick was in that building. And we arrested the person, we went to trial, and we lost the case. Judge McGettrick, however, didn't get off so easy. He received a four-year sentence and died in prison. He's, in my knowledge, the only Cuyahoga Common Pleas Court judge to ever go to prison for bribery. Up to this point, all of the angels that my father testified against were acquitted. He went back to prison while we were stuck in Billings, Montana, trying to adjust to our new lives and identities. Here's a letter he sent to a detective who'd worked on one of the cases. I may not have been the best witness up on the stand, and my ability to express myself verbally has been very hard for me, but I never lost the ability to think and to be aware of all that was going on around me. Every one of these federal agents had one focus on their mind. Here I was, telling them of wholesale murders that were taking place all across the country, and they just didn't seem to think this was more important than breaking up some million-dollar drug ring. Then to sit there telling them about this member and his involvement in something and have to stop and tell them who I was talking about because they weren't taking notes or paying attention to what or who I was talking about would tear me up so bad. I would just sit and ask myself if it was all worth it. McGettrick pled guilty to bribery, but not once did I lose my conviction. But still, all seemed to believe what Kaplan and the club has said about me that I did it for some kind of a payment for $1,245 a month. First place, the $1,245 is only for six months, and it's a very small sum when you consider that we had to completely restock on everything it takes to stock a household of five people. That money was long gone before the end of the month. And each day we begged for the new identities promised to us because it would allow us to both go to work and bring in twice as much as we were forced to live on. Even now, after five years, Mary hasn't gotten on the identification she was promised when we turned in our IDs. Then, Mary filed for divorce. They removed her from the program, which means that she had to turn in her new identity and was given back her old identity. Kids were allowed to keep their names, but Mary was put on Front Street by having to live under the name Crouch. So like a rat in a cage, I find myself pacing back and forth, trying to find a solution to all this and a way to save Mary from harm before it's too late. Sorry I got off into all this, but I wanted to let you see all the things that I had to go through while I was trying desperately to hold on to whatever sanity I had left, while I had to constantly tell myself that I was doing something of worth and making up for all the senseless things I'd done in my life. Anyway, it's something like living on a tightrope, and you never know when you're going to be shoved to the side and make room for some other witness coming in with more usefulness. Not once has anyone bothered to place themselves in my shoes and understand what it meant to me to trade all I'd become, something I would have died for before becoming a snitch. To me, this was the worst thing in all my life. 
It was like trading away my very soul. What good's a man who's lost his soul? Can't take a stand when his flame's gone cold. On the next episode of Relative Unknown. 90% of the time, there's no danger involved. And that danger is manufactured in a lot of respects to keep people in tow. My family and I were used. It's as simple as that. And as for my father, he still had one last horrifying murder trial to testify in. This was a cold case before they even had the name cold case. And this one was based on more than just hearsay. He was giving up details of this crime that only somebody that was there would have known about. For episode transcripts and story extras, visit relativeunknown.com. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.